now, our feature presentation. everyone, welcome to another episode of the Florida Sound Archive Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Kaiser, and for today's episode, I have on with me two guests. I have with me Chris Potash and Joey Seaman. They are the authors and creators of the book, Punk Under the Sun, Punk and New Wave in South Florida. Hey guys, welcome in. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. So the book is fairly new, right? It's only been out for a little while. I think what it came out uh, late last year. Is that right? Yeah, it came out in November. November of last year. So like anything, when it comes to a book or a music album, whatever it is, it obviously takes some time to put that together. It wasn't just an idea that came overnight. So do you remember the origins of when this idea first popped in your head to even do this book? Yeah, yeah. Um... I had the idea, I was talking to my friend, uh, Lisette Mendez, who's the director of the Miami Book Fair. And I was kind of kicking the idea around with her and she's like, please do it, please do it. We need a book like that about the scene. So basically it was originally gonna be a book of just my flyer collection, uh, flyers, photos, zines. It was gonna be more of a visual kind of book. But as I started deep, getting a deeper dive into the subject matter, and learning more, I realized that the stories had to be told because there was nowhere else really documenting those early 80s, mid 80s bands. So it kind of grew from there. And what is your recollection, Chris? Well, I got a call from Joey that he was working on a book about the South Florida music scene in the 1980s. And uh, that just sounded great to me. (laughs) So um, I asked him about where he was in the book and he explained to me all the the key people that he already talked to. And it just sounded like something that I wanted to be a part of. I was listening to the interview you did, Joey, with Rob Elba on the record got me high. And you were mentioning on his podcast that you really never connected way back when. And it wasn't until all those years later that you two got together because Chris was more familiar with putting out a book and you were really the hardcore fan of the music. So talk about that relationship when you finally got together. How did you kind of build the two? Yeah. So, you know, and I have to thank Chris every time for accepting to work with me on this project because without him, it wouldn't have gone as far as it has. Uh, So thank you, Chris. And we met because, like I said, um, there was a picture that had run in the Miami News of me coming out of the Cameo Theater. And that picture keeps coming up and coming up and coming up on Facebook or different different sites. I see it all over the place. And I have a copy of it. And I saw that the, the byline of the story was written by Chris. So that was where I started. You know, I was like, hey, man, is this the same? Are you the same Chris that wrote this story? Because that's me in the photo. So in that, we were able to first connect and go, oh, that's you. That's you. Um, We didn't know each other back then, but we were right there in the same space. You know, (laughs) he was working at the Cameo, working with Richard Shelter, and I was going to the Cameo. So (laughs) we we just happened to miss, you know, but um, we, we connected about four years ago. 
and we he's in Pennsylvania, I'm in Dallas, and we wrote the whole book virtually, you know, just through emails and phone calls. What do you both remember of the first local club type show you ever attended? And I, I, I talk about this a couple times, so I'm sorry if I'm being repetitive, but uh, the first band that I got to see in, in a local band, I, the first show I went to was at Flynn's. And it was to see a friend of mine's band from high school called Incursion. And they were like a thrash metal band, you know, like gnarly early Metallica. And so I wasn't sure I would be able to get in. And he was like, no, it's it's easy peasy up there. Just go on, you know. So I went up to Flynn's, walked in, and I got to see Incursion play at Flynn's. And then I went back another time and saw Z Toys, which became one of my absolute favorite bands back then. You know, when I was, I was still in high school. <laughs> Um, the first, the first big punk show that I went to, I think it was at the Lincoln theater and it was the, um, the D-Day one. It was, uh, Dag Nasty, Descendants, Dykroitzen and the Drills. So that was like my first, like real crazy shit, hardcore kind of punk show. Yeah. So the Drills were the only local band on that bill. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, was this the show? I think this was it. <laughs> Is this your card? Yeah. <laughs> Russell Mosky from Quit. That was also his first punk show. Yeah, that was the first one. And as a side note, um, deep connections with the drills because Roger and I worked together. Roger, the bass player, um, he was my boss at Pearl Art Supply uh, down on US1. So uh, he was always telling me, come to the show, come to the show, come to the show. So I became a quick fan. And Chris, what about you? You know, the very first punk show that I saw was at um, was at the Cameo. It was seven seconds. So that wasn't the local band, but I remember... I had just broken up with my girlfriend and I got into a fight with her. And uh, so I walked, I was just walking around South Beach. I lived on West Avenue at that point and I saw flyers for this show, um, which I hadn't been to any, any music shows at that point. So I walked over to the cameo and I remember seeing seven seconds and it was like, wow, I was blown away. This is a very cool scene. Um, Local band was probably Amazing Grace. I know they opened for a lot of the shows that I used to go see at Cameo. And, um, you know, they weren't punk, I wouldn't say, but they had a punk element to them. It was the kind of that transition between punk and metal and hardcore. And um, I, they were very impressive then. And they came back together for the 2017 for Richard's reunion at Churchill's. And they were just as powerful. I mean, they were, they're good. They're a good band, a good, solid band. Uh, another weird element about Amazing Grace is before they were Amazing Grace, a couple of the guys were in a band called The Spinouts with Joey Maya from The Reactions, and they were a rockabilly band. Seriously, and I, I found one of their records, like a, a weird kind of rare press that they did of The Spinouts, but it's it's basically kind of a, a revved up harder rockabilly, you know, maybe even psychobilly we'd call it today. Yeah. Before, before they morphed into that more metal edged Amazing Grace sound that we know. Got to look for that. Sounds good. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard it before. So I, mean, I, I know the spin outs, but I don't think I've ever heard that. I want to talk about that first moment, uh, that first day that you two got together to start putting these ideas together. Walk us through that. What was that first meeting like? I'm not a writer, <laughs> but I can write, you know, I guess. So what I started doing was just, you know, talking to people and recording interviews um, and I had a list of the bands that I wanted to talk about, you know, maybe it was like 10 bands at that point. And I started with Charlie Pickett because he's kind of like the center of 
everybody kind of revolves around Charlie in one way or another. So I talked to him and he was like, oh, you got to learn about slider. You got to learn about um, tight squeeze. You got to learn about this. You got to learn about that. And I was like, holy shit. So he took me on that journey going deeper and deeper. And I started tracking people down and doing interviews. And I think stylistically, I kind of, you know, I was looking at uh, Please Kill Me as a template because I love that first person narrative of people who were on the scene telling you the story, especially it has to be that way for some of the bands before my time. So I kind of incorporated that style with a little bit of my own editorial. So that was what I started with. I just started with, you know, a few interviews and a, a list of bands I wanted to cover. Yeah. And, um, you know, our initial connection was the Miami News. I was a writer for the Miami News. I covered the Miami music scene um, for with it. I had a column called Off the Record. Uh, and before that, I worked a little bit for The Wave, which was a weekly uh, tabloid. But um, at the News, I wrote a weekly music column. I would interview national bands who were coming through, local bands. So, but after that, I also got into book editing. I was a book editor at a couple different houses. Um, and so I kind of, when I initially saw what Joey was doing, I'm like, well, I can, I can edit this. I can work with you to kind of pull it all together. Cause you already have some awesome uh, interviews that he showed me, you know, the interview that he'd done already with a bunch of key band people. And so I said, yeah, you know, let me start editing it. And then, we worked in where I could include some of my columns from the 80s. And uh, and then I said, well, you know, there's a lot here about the bands. You got that covered. Let me write a final chapter that talks about that kind of pulls together everything that was beyond the bands. And that's the, the final chapter is called Beyond the Bands. And that was largely my contribution as far as talking about the clubs, the DJs, um, the visual publications, arts. the visual arts. The visual arts, yep. The scene that was happening down there on Miami Beach with Howard Davis and Artifacts and how they went to Fire and Ice and created environments. So um, everything that kind of was it that supported the scene, that supported the music scene, that supported the musicians and made it kind of, uh, you know, an incredible time culturally. Um, we wrapped that in there as well. And really what, what he talks about in that last chapter, it's like all the ingredients getting shaken up before the big boom of, you know, when South Beach really exploded. So it was like all these players doing things, making making it interesting, making it compelling, a place everybody wanted to go and be seen right before it exploded. What bands or people did you learn about for the first time through your research and interviews while you were planning to put this book together? The, the, the big one that I learned about was from Charlie Pickett sending me down like the two that I mentioned, Tight Squeeze and Slider. Um, tight Squeeze were a, a, some mostly coverish band, but they had their own club. And on Tuesday nights, they gave it over to the punk bands to do like a Punk Tuesdays or New Wave Tuesdays or whatever it was called. And they had like The Eat. They had Critical Mass. They had The Cichlids. They, they gave a stage to the punk bands to really start playing on a, you know, to a wider audience. So uh, Tight Squeeze, while they didn't really record anything in their time, they've put out something recently with, um, you know, they got some of the original guys back together. You know, it's ever AOR rock, you know, but back then they were, you know, the stories I hear sounds like they were amazing, tight live band. Uh, Slider were another one of those bands, just really good um, hard rock. They formed 
uh, Big Bang after after they broke up, and they I think they even had like a, an MTV video, so they had some success. Um, but those are the kind of bands that I like digging into, you know. And of course, like we just talked about the spinouts, like I didn't really pick up on the spinouts, and now I'm like, oh, I like this. Yeah, <laughs> Joey is the musician, so he he had that kind of angle where he knew, you know, the musicians, or he wanted to know who the musicians were from back then. Um, I think the only one that I kind of pushed that he was unsure whether we should include in the book or not was a band called Stranglers of Bombay. Yeah, I, I was just talking to Roger Deering from The Drills, who's now his current band is called Crime Wave. Um, we were just talking two nights ago and he was like, man, Stranglers of Bombay, they were a kick ass band. I don't know. You know, he was raving about them. And I'm like, that's what I remember, too. They were a really good band. The, the single that they put out is a little bit jokey. So maybe they didn't quite get taken seriously, but they were really good, you know, good metal band. But to me, they represented in the 80s was all of that transition from, you know, the punk scene to post-punk to new wave to metal to thrash. And, you know, they they were like one of those in in between bands, it just seemed like, where they were going from like the 70s long hair heavy metal thing but they were kind of they were beyond that they were a little bit beyond that they were kind of transitioning into you know like mtv was was changing the way people were seen and they they just struck me as like somewhere in between and they were interesting to to note at least for a you know a couple paragraphs i thought it was important to include them <laughs> yeah I, w- I wasn't sure i was just like uh, uh but you know in the end I, th- I think it's cool that we added them the image of them is is cool, and the background has a big Burger King sign. So Burger King was, was I mean, and know. apparently, you know, um, they would they would do like keg parties and bring thousands of people out to a field like down in Cutler Ridge, and just all ages keg rager. You know, they they were really popular on some level. I think they just didn't really hit in the club scene quite as well as they did with the underage kind of teenage crowd. You know, it's a scene like anywhere else across the country. There were house parties that these bands played at. They played at legitimate clubs. They played at illegitimate clubs. Um, They played outside. So, um, you know, they were certainly keggers. So that was a part of the time of the 80s of just being in South Florida. So it seemed like an appropriate thing to to remember. Did you two find yourselves going to many of those types of shows or were you more into the shows that were at an actual club or a venue of some sort? I mostly went to clubs. I didn't have a car. So wherever I went, I had to take a bus or so mainly I, a lot of my shows were either in uh, on my on the beach or I would catch a bus or a ride up to Fort Lauderdale to the Button South or um, the Banal Club or over to Churchill's. So um, I was somewhat limited. I didn't have uh, I had, I was a transplant, too. So I didn't have a lot of friends like Joey grew up in, in uh, South Florida. So he had maybe had some friends who were having some keggers. <laughs> Is that true, Joey? <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, my, my friend, um, my friend Mike's band Incursion were one of those bands that did keggers. You know, um, I think that brings up a really good distinction to talk about, too, is like you know, age gap, let's call it the, the South Florida original music scene kind of starts in like 79 and goes till about 82, 83. It's like, you know, a, a pretty direct line from like tight squeeze, the blue waters to Flynn's and um, before Flynn's 27 birds, the blitz clubs, all of the Richard shelter clubs, you know, all of those clubs were, you know, drinking age clubs, drinking, 
there's a big distinction that that happens when he opens the cameo and like what is it 83 84 i think he opened the cameo and it's all it's all ages now now everybody can go like me you know like underage high school age kids can go to see dri or circle jerks or whoever you know it was kind of like i said like a breaking point between the old guard of drinking clubs and older musicians and their their followings now it's the cameo and it's totally different you know and, and some of those bands transitioned into it and some didn't you know amazing grace like you mentioned the drills quite a few bands did um transition over to the cameo but a lot also just didn't find their crowd again yeah that makes sense and you know you think about some of these places you're talking about like the cameo which is in miami and then you think about stuff in broward right so were you going to any of these places or seeing some of these bands in broward as well i imagine you were yeah, I, I did because my um my my friend Scotty Upton, who was a drummer in my bands, he had gone to the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale. So he kind of had a foot up there and knew about things that were going on and would bring the flyers and go, oh, we got to go to this, go to, go to that, go to like um, Underground at Penrods or uh, the Button or Button South, you know, sometimes whatever show, whatever there was shows up there that I would go to, it was generally tied to stuff Scotty knew about. A friend of mine who worked at the news with me, Carlos Suarez, um, lived in Broward in Fort Lauderdale. And so I would go up visit him and then we would go out mainly to house parties, but we would go to the button and um, I think, yeah, mainly just the button. How did you know where your cutoff point was when it came to South Florida? Because some people may constitute South Florida as maybe like Palm Beach down to like West. So how did you kind of draw that line in the sand where, okay, this is our mark. We're not going to cross some of these other towns. We're going to stick in this area and consider that South Florida. I draw the line at North Fort Lauderdale, man. I don't... <laughs> That's to me, you know, I, I think it could include West Palm as well. I just didn't really find that many bands to write about. Maybe there's a couple. So there's a, a DJ that I interviewed for the final chapter and he he lived in, in Broward and did some spinning up in West West Palm Beach and would talk about, I guess it was a respectable cafe, um, some places up there. So, yeah, I think the coverage of the book mainly centers in Miami and Broward, but maybe stretches a little bit higher and, and even lower into, well, down where you were, Joey, right? I think Reunion Room was in West Palm. I'm not 100% sure, but it was a little bit more north. But, you know, to me, that's that's my area of expertise and I don't want to pretend to be an expert on Gainesville music or Tampa music or Tallahassee. You know, I figured like, this is my strong point stick here. Was there any band in particular who you were like, man, I really want to get them in this book, but they just didn't fit. Like they weren't, they didn't fit that, that sound. Like, was there a band or two you just really <laughs> wanted in the book, but you just couldn't put in the book. I would, I would reframe it slightly into saying that there was probably other bands that I wanted to write about more or, or include that just never returned my emails. <laughs> you know? Like I can't write about you if you don't tell me your story. So, you know, unfortunately a lot of people just dismissed it or, you know, kind of blew it off. Um, yeah. Frank Falestra was one of those, you know, we really yeah. wanted to have, have Frank in our book, Frank. Man, we could probably could have given an entire chapter to Frank Falestra's accomplishments, <laughs> recordings, just generally a cheerleader of the scene for so many years and putting things on. I mean, but yeah, he was really hard to get in touch with until after the book was out. <laughs> yeah, he came to the, so we launched the book at the Miami Book Fair 
And Frank, of course, was there when we we had a, a panel discussion about the book. And uh, he was nice enough to come up and he signed my copy of the book because uh, I think it's important to all these people were so important to the scene. It was great that, you know, we wanted first and foremost to recognize everybody who participated in any way, uh, musicians, even if you're just going to a show or, you know, recording or doing a, a, a publication about it. But um, yeah, so he finally came out. That said, there were other people that did, you know, were nice and and uh, were more than happy to help us out. You know, Jill Kahn being number one with the with her photos that are in the book. Um, you know, just can't say enough about Jill and actually all of the photographers who allowed us to use their photos in the book. Um, you know, they were generous. They were understanding and they provide us some awesome images that really do tell the story. I thought of a band who I wanted to write about who I couldn't get any info. Sleep of Reason. Um, they were like a kind of a death rockish da- dance band. I just couldn't find enough information about them. And, and you know, I, I kind of in one of the chapters, I kind of focus on what I call death rock. You know, the ones that were kind of goth, kind of synth, kind of dance, you know, and I kind of group some of those together to show that representation. And I really wanted to cover Sleep of Reason, but I just couldn't get in touch, you know, so unfortunate, but I wanted to. Yeah, I've had Oscar Herrera on the podcast. Ironically, his wife showed up to introduce us at the Miami Book Fair, and I was like, tell him I wanted to talk to him. <laughs> he would have talked to you. I imagine he would I'm have. sure he would have. But yeah, he just didn't, of course. Didn't, I didn't have the right channels. You mentioned Jill Kahn, though, who did the photos and other people, too, who also helped. Talk about the photos and talk about some of your personal favorites that are in the book. You know, the cover image is is special to me because I'm a huge Velvet Underground fan. And um, we went through a couple different images for the cover. You know, should we use a low, you know, maybe the, the first idea that would come into mind, we should use a local band. But um, the actual cover has John Cale on there because he was one of the first acts to, to perform at the Cameo Theater. And um, it's a great, awesome shot of him in the backstage, which uh, looks great. Um, Joey, who did the layout and the design of the book, by the way, um, chose the color for the cover, which I think really makes it stand out. But um, that's one of my favorite is the the cover shot. Um, even though it's not of a local band, I think it captures, um, you know, it, it captures the kinds of bands, the quality who came down to South Florida, and it captures them in South Florida, in the scene, backstage at the Cameo. It's just a great shot. Were you both in agreement with that when you decided that it was going to be someone that wasn't involved in the South Florida scene? There was some conversation around it, you know, because again, like Chris mentioned, you know, it's a local band book, you know, and I I really kind of did want, originally I wanted somebody local, but there just wasn't that killer, killer shot. And what I really love about this photo is it's so gritty. There's so much texture and grime and spray paint and cigarette butts, you know, you can feel it. And it it really is evocative, um, more so than any of the local band photos that I had that would have served well as a cover. And, you know, it it is extra special because Jill writes a little story about it on the inside first page. <laughs> she tells her story of um, that night of taking that photo and hanging out with John Cale, which is really cool. Were you both at that same show or that was just Jill? I didn't go to it. (laughs) I did. I was there. I wasn't going to miss that. I I would say um, as far as other photos in the book that are of my favorites, there's 
right in the table of contents. There's a photo by Nikki Costanzo and she took a photo of the front guitar player, Randy Rush. And he's just on stage and he's packing like a, a revolver on his hip while he's playing live. And I'm just like, Holy shit, that's so good. That's so good. we got to use it, you know, because <laughs> it kind of, again, you know, makes you really think about the time and place, you know, it was a little bit wild. It was a little bit violent. You didn't know if there was going to be a protest happening or a march or riots. Fuck. You don't know, you know, and that guy up there wearing a gun on his hip is kind of a, a wild shot. Yeah. There was one photo um, from the Miami Herald that uh, I just felt captured the scene. It's two girls sitting outside uh, or standing outside the cameo um, right during the gang green show that happened there, which if anybody went to that show, I'm sure you remember they had uh, <laughs> they were they were skateboarding on stage. They had a half pipe, I think, or a quarter pipe and, you know, spewing beer everywhere. Of course, it was awesome. <laughs> but um, the photo has these two girls, you know, young girls and um, dressed in kind of punk regalia, punkish kind of new wave clothes. And I thought it, it talked about the fashion, which, you know, was something, too. You know, there was there were stores that that sold punk new wave clothing that kind of helped promote the scene but also support the scene at the same time so um that one photo i felt like i wanted to to pay for to include in in the book just because it you know a lot of the bands had guys in it so we wanted to get some girls in there as well and show that they were part of the scene you know in miami and everywhere definitely and I like the fact that there's a lot of that variety of showing the fashion of what was going on at that time, because with all the different bands and different kinds of music, you get something completely different. You get something a little more gothy, a little something more just simple and plain, or you might get a skinny tie here and there. So what was your look when you were kind of going through this period yourself? <laughs> I, I mean, Speaking of the word transition, which we seem to be using quite a bit here, I mean, I was coming out of high school, I was a metalhead, you know, I was just into like Motley Crue, Ozzy, Iron Maiden, the sportatorium shows, you know, going to the sporto, getting fucked up on the weekends and, you know, just seeing the bands that I like like that. So, like I said, my initial tendency was to go see metal bands at Flynn's or, you know, wherever they were playing. But as the cameo opened and I had some place where I could go and still be underage, then I started getting into the punk shit, you know, and I was just like, I love this. I love, I love everything about it. You know, a lot of it was really new to me. So I still kept my kind of metal look with a bit of a punk thing going to, you know, <laughs> lots of eyeliner, lots of hairspray. <laughs> Were you wearing lots of leather too? Not in Miami. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's pretty a little, a little warm for that, but you know, it's part of the, it was, part it of was the above my pay grade for leathers at that time. <laughs> I was a big replacements fan, so I kind of fashioned my fashion off of them, you know, with ripped jeans and T-shirts, uh, pretty basic, uh, you know, basic working man type stuff. But uh, I did. I talked to Wendy Coburn again, trying to get the the women's angle here. Um, she was uh, she was actually Greg Baker's other half during the 80s and uh, she would go to a lot of shows, obviously. And so I wanted to get her input on girls punk fashion during the 80s so she gave us a nice little uh paragraph or two about what that what it was like as a girl to kind of get ready to go out to a show um you know whether you were in the back or you worked your way to the front there was there was they were everywhere it was it was it was cool to see and wanted to acknowledge that 
Yeah. I think also my, my look started evolving once I started going to fire and ice, you know, then metal shit wasn't going to fly. Then I started dressing like more all black, more makeup, more goth, you know, cause man, I fucking just loved fire and ice. How long did it take you to complete the book? Four years. Yeah. Right around. Four my, years. my involvement was a li- was less. Joey had started the book first. So I, I'll let Joey talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think, you know, we didn't really have a fire under our ass at first. <laughs> we were just kind of freeform writing and compiling. Um, at, at one point, though, we kind of came together and Chris was like, we got, we've got to do a, If we're serious about this, we have to create a proposal. And for the proposal, we have to do X, Y, Z. We have to fill out these check boxes. So that really kind of helps solidify the ideas, you know, instead of being so freeform all over the place, they have to start fitting in a form. So that was really the big, big thing that Chris helped get us over the hump with. Um, we created a proposal. Cool. Now we take the proposal and we start sending it around. Um, as that process was unfolding, we still were writing and still developing and, you know, things happen in life, you know, like I move or start a new job or whatever, you know, and the book went on the back burner for a while, but really in the last, I'd say 2022, 2023, we did the majority of the push through and got it done. I think that's the the advantage to having a co-author is that, you know, I would kind of prompt him. He would prompt me. We would then feel guilty that we haven't done more. And then, and then we would move forward at some point. Yeah. It was like accountability partners, you know? So we'd go like, Hey, did you do this? Did you do this? You know, we both divvy up the work pretty well. Um, I think once we got the proposal out and we started getting some interest that really motivated us, you know, when we got our, our offer from Hozak, then we're like, oh shit, this is real. And then, you know, that was one goal. The next goal is we have to have it done by a certain point so we could be at the Miami Book Fair to launch it last November. Uh, so those are really big driving things that pushed us to get it done. Were there any other proposals you made to other publishers where perhaps they said no on this project? Yeah, a couple. Um, there was a couple that said no. There was also one that said yes before this this one with uh, Hozak was the one that we chose the other deal let's say maybe it wasn't so good for us you know it wasn't quite the right fit they wanted it to be more of a scholarly type book with paperback format and not a lot of photos and i was like no that's not really my vision my vision is it's got to be visual for all those people you know there's two components that are big for me visual and the sound unfortunately the book doesn't get the sounds across but i'm kind of doing playlists and podcasts to help people learn about the music but visually tells the story and the the previous offer was not going to support that kind of a format for us. So we felt like Hozak gave us a lot of creative freedom and he, you know, was like, okay, with our vision, didn't really put too many constraints on us. You know, <laughs> and that's important, right? Cause you want to make sure whatever your vision is. I mean, I, th- I think about movies, for example, where you watch a movie and it's not the director's cut. It's what the studio wanted you to see. And you're like, wait a right. minute. I want to see the real version of it. And it's always a shame when something gets changed because of a publisher or someone else that had more control than you did, but it's your work, right? It's your vision. So there was a few things that we brought up to him editorially to see like, Hey, is this shit going to get us in trouble? You know? And he was like, no, this is fine. You know, it's first person account. So, okay. What was something that you thought could get you in trouble? Jill's story at the beginning of the book <laughs> about the cover photo, <laughs> you know, 
Maybe there was. I think there were a couple of other places where people had, you know, I mean, it was a small scene and it was like any, you know, smaller, like a family. There's going to be, um, you know, internal rivalries. I think there were a couple of quotes that I saw by by people who were saying something maybe about somebody else that um, that wasn't necessary. Like, you know, 95 percent of what they wrote was about themselves and um, not necessarily all positive even. But um, there were a couple of comments that I just I felt like we don't need to include that. And that's part of, you know, editing any kind of book. You do that where you distill it down to the best stuff. Not that you're censoring what somebody's saying, but you're just presenting it in a way that in the context that, uh, you know, is appropriate. It tells the story and moves the story along, not necessarily gossipy. Yeah, uh, correct. One, one of the other ones was the in the metal section. There's a there's a band called Young Turk. And after they, they got in some trouble, it was widely reported and documented in newspapers. So I kind of touch on that because to ignore it would be irresponsible, I think. But, you know, again, tread lightly on the well, the singer went on to be like a politician kind of guy in Miami, and he's continuing to get in trouble. And, you know, so. I touched on it. It's it's all out there in the Herald and the, the my, uh, New Times, you know, so it's well documented. We've talked about Jill Kahn so far and another key person whose name was also listed early on in the book is Open Books and Records co-founder Leslie Wimmer. Talk about her involvement with the book. Yeah, she's in the first, first paragraph, really. Um, yeah. You know, she came up with the the album you have behind behind you, um, you know, helped produce that uh, Florida record of bands that were happening down there, the land that time forgot. And, uh, you know, so she was running the record store that supported the scene. She was putting out records and helping promote bands. Um, and then ultimately reached out to her, wanted her uh, story in the book. And um, of course, then when we were doing our, panel for the Miami Book Fair, we asked her to be on it because uh, she's such a key key player. Was that the first time that you both were together like that at a book fair in Florida? Was that the first appearance that you made like that? Yep. That's the first time we met in person. <laughs> what was that like? I mean, it was great. You know, I mean, I hadn't, we, we've talked on the phone so many times and we've done Zoom calls and, you know, had so much correspondence. I think we really have a pretty good sense of each other and it was it was great to finally be able to meet in person yeah for sure it was that first night that we were sitting there talking it felt uh it felt right um the only thing i didn't know is how tall joey is he's a big guy <laughs> how tall are you joey uh 511 ish you know <laughs> okay. well, maybe i'm just particularly short <laughs> i didn't so. i don't know but yeah so you know it was it was also really rewarding to finally meet my co-author writer partner and we're there like at the finish line you know launching our book to the larger public and it was just really cool to have that feeling what was something you kept hearing from people as they not only heard you talk but when you had those moments where people could come up to you and and chat what were you hearing from people so right after the book fair or after we gave our panel discussion we did a book signing and for me, it was particularly um, satisfying. There were some younger people. There was it was great to see some old people 
I saw Jim Quinlan, who I hadn't seen in you know, <laughs> I don't know decades and decades. He popped up and said hello, so it was great to see him. I know Joey reunited with some some people that he hadn't seen in a while, um, but there also there were also some young people who came up and they got their book signed. And you know, I was curious, you know, how did you hear about the book? What's your interest? And I think the one girl was um, she wanted to document her own scene now, the punk scene that was happening in Miami now. And she just kind of wanted to get that historical perspective on it. Um, there was another girl who said that her mom was part of the scene back in the eighties. So she was buying the book as a gift for a Christmas gift for her mom. So that was kind of cool that, she, and she was decked out in kind of some, some cool clothes. So I'm going to guess that she's kind of into that music as well. So it was great to see, you know, that interest carry through to the newer generation. One to add on to that is that post book fair, I found out that uh, one girl who bought the book at the book fair goes to UM and used the book as one of like her project references and was writing from our book as a source. And I was like, that's cool. That's what we want. You know, take it to the next place, you know, and that's great. You know, bring it on to the next generation. One of the, the first interviews we did was with a young couple and they were in a band and they, they even mentioned to us, they're like, oh yeah, had no idea about all these, these bands that happened before us. I was like, man, well, here you go. You know, <laughs> here's an encyclopedia. <laughs> That's exactly it. Unless you really go hunt it down. You know, there's some old articles, old new time articles by Abel Folger. Um, there's some old Greg Baker articles out there floating around, but even now the New Times has kind of buried those. It's hard to find that stuff. That's that that's true. And if you do sometimes find it uh, in other publications, uh, it's not much to really go off of. Uh, it depends on yeah, what they, what I, they wrote at that time. I, I heavily referenced Jeff Lemlick's book, by the way. You know, like his book is encyclopedic also, but it more deals with like radio show personalities and stations back then. Uh, but there is some really good stuff on the vinyl and the, the you know, the history of like TK records in his book. So I definitely reference certain things from there. And the other book that I referenced was uh, Joey Maya's The Drummer of Miami Beach, which is his uh, book that's out on Jitney. And there's some really good stuff about the early scene from his perspective there. Another thing, too, I was thinking about as well, because you think about some of the different uh, radio stations of the day or even some of the pirate radio stations who are maybe playing more of the local stuff that the larger stations weren't playing. Do any particular stations or any particular shows from that period stand out to you that you wanted to also share some memories on? Um, so in researching the book, I know that Piper High School up in Broward was a place that I guess uh, played a lot of kind of Kid cutting X. edge new wave and and punk music. So I want to give them a shout out. Um you know, I used to listen to public radio as LRN and uh, and learn about stuff there. I don't know, Joey, what, what were you listening to? Well, I you know, I grew up kind of in Kendall. So the, the closest alternative show that I could hear would be like on uh, WVUM's local show on Sunday nights, the University of Miami radio station. You mentioned Piper High. I would get that if I was up in Lauderdale somewhere. I'd pick that up on the radio. Um, also Monday nights on WLRN, I think, uh, Bob Slade had his show called off the beaten path. And yep. that, was like, yeah, that's what that was like the internet of punk back then is like, cause he would talk, here's the new bands and here's the upcoming shows. You know, he would give you all that good stuff. Uh, Bob Slade is another one. I really tried hard to track him down and I could not find him. I uh, would have loved to have interviewed him. Cause I think he was also an important part of the scene. 
And I think that was going back to one of your other guests on your podcast. That was the first time I heard the prom sluts was um, <laughs> I heard the prom sluts playing um, wake up little Susie. It's time to die or something on, on Bob Slade's show. And I was just like, holy shit, what is this? You know, <laughs> I love, love Priya and Robert. <laughs> yes. Creamy electric Santa. That's a great episode. So yeah. uh Hard to define that kind of music. I feel like then. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I tr- I actually I, I got to jam with Robert and Priya once, like in the '90s, and man, I c- I couldn't keep up. You know, they're he's all over the place. He's like Zappa or something. You know, he's like you know jazz chords and right. changes and time signatures. I'm like, no, dude, I only know punk rock. <laughs> it's a good comparison, though. Yeah, yeah. definitely, de- definitely Zappa. Like so. Were there any particular bands from that period that you personally just wish there was something else, that there was something tangible that you can listen to, you could have bought? Any bands or artists come to mind that were in the book that didn't never put anything out? That's a tough so one. one of the bands that I, that, um, that I didn't know a lot about that I kind of learned about in the process of putting the book together really from Joey is Crank. And, um, you know, I wish that there was more about them because they seemed they seemed really intense, you know, kind of right on again, um, transitional between punk and performance art and um, just some pretty wild stuff. You know, there's similar kind of bands that I've seen um, out in the yeah, L.A. scene, but um, I was surprised and it was great to learn about them. I wish there would have been more about them when I was down there. Yeah, I, th- I I would definitely agree with that. Crank only had a couple of songs on the my uh, the Florida Explosion cassette that Rick Lennick put out, and that that cassette, God bless it, but man, some of the quality on it is just shit, you know, <laughs> over the years. And I'm sitting on a third generation copy, you know. So, but yeah, I would definitely have loved to hear more from Crank. Um, one band that I was told that I should really learn about, and I couldn't find anything, was the Expressos. And they were a Flynn's era band and Roger from the drills raves about how good they were. I can't find anything about them. You know, uh, it's also a band called the leopards and I could, couldn't find much about them either. I first learned about them in Greg McLaughlin's documentary. Yeah. He did imagine that was the yeah. same place you learned about them. Yep, exactly. There. <laughs> yep. But I couldn't yeah. find anything else. You know? And the cookies too, right, Joey? So the cookies, you, you know, which you you maybe heard me talk about on Rob Elba's show was that, you know, as we were doing the book signing, uh, Frank Falester came up and he's like, hey, everybody who wants to get their book signed, you got to get them to read this note. And he puts a post-it note that said, listen to the evil. <laughs> I'm like, the evil? <laughs> They're a 60s band from, you know, Florida. And they put out a single, which was a cover of the Oh fuck the the small faces or something you know they 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 did like a cover of what you're going to do about it and cool but and then I told somebody else about I told Steve Toth about that and he goes he told you about the evil I was like yeah man I already knew about the evil and he goes man he should have told you about the cookies and I was like okay so after the book fair after the book is already out then I learned about the cookies and they were an amazing power pop band um just really good yeah. I mean, it happens, you know, and just there's so much out there. And sometimes yeah. you talk to all these people and then it slips through the cracks and they get to that one person. They're like, oh, what about them? I miss them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Steve, uh, Joe was talking about Steve Toth from Sweat Records. He was great during the uh, before, during and after, um, you know, he's he's 
so he's provide he has the book in his in their in their store there um and uh you know he was a great support and is continues to be he introduced us at the at the panel and which was really cool and one another one of those weird connections i didn't know steve back in the 80s or the 90s but he bought one of my paintings from a gallery on south beach back in like 94 so he still has one of my paintings and i'm like yeah, that's really cool a lot of times when something like this comes out whether it's a book whether you're bringing people together for a, a reunion podcast episode, it can kind of reinvigorate people to where they're like, well, you know, we, ha- we haven't played together in 40 years, but this has sparked something. Have you had any of those moments yet where someone that you yes. captured in the book is now looking to bring it back in the current times? Two big ones that I can mention, and I'm really stoked about this. So, <laughs> and uh, Chris, answer after if you have others. But the first one that started was Wowie. Uh, they were like early mid seventies Miami band, um, just good rock, power pop ish rock. Um, and then they moved to New York and kind of fizzled out up there. They had they just put out a compilation of their singles and other stuff that had never been released. Right when our book came out. You know, but I'm happy for that because like I'm a record collector like you are. And I was happy to, you know, get some updated vinyl from them. So that was one. The other one I just saw yesterday on Facebook, which is uh, Critical Mass is going to be reforming and doing a show in Davie. <laughs> I saw like, that. I, now, I'm not taking credit for putting those guys back. <laughs> but I hope that they're riding the wave in their way, you know. Did anybody from the band reach out after the book was out to share any? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a couple, a couple of them. Uh, the, the bass player, Henry Laplume, wrote, wrote me and said what a great book it was. And um, I've seen a couple of them commenting on Facebook. I know that um, kind of at the same time as our book was coming out, Vesper Sparrow, Rich Uloa over at Yesterday and Today Records was putting out a compilation of their stuff from the 80s. So, yeah, there maybe there's a zeitgeist uh, feeling going on where I hope so. some of this stuff is coming back. That would make me fully happy you know is like that whatever bands get back together and you know or people reconnect or whatever it is you know right and that too you know it's always nice when you can bring people together not on purpose right just because of just what you're doing can help to reconnect so i do know i want to you know give richard shelter a little bit more credit to when he pulled together the 2017 reunion at churchill's um, a lot of bands from the scene played and they were just, I mean, they were kick ass. I'm sure they would, if, if they had gigs to play, they would play it and they would be, be awesome today at it. You also called out several different record shops that have come up and just because of just the nature of what we're talking about here. Are there any other record stores or maybe some of the ones we've talked about that you think uh, played a huge part and also in helping to uh, really uh, push what was going on in the 80s with some of these bands that were featured in the book? Yeah, I think the the, the DJs that I interviewed, uh, Mon Sherrar, and uh, I know he gave um, Rich and Yesterday and Today kudos. And of course, Leslie over at Open Books and Records, they definitely supported the scene. I think, you know, like also like some of the larger chains, like at least Peaches, when I had a band, we had a cassette, we would put our cassettes on consignment and Peaches would sell our cassettes for us. So, you know, in in more ways than one, those kind of record stores supported musicians, gave them jobs, you know, all of my musician friends worked at record stores. 
Um, that's where you picked up your flyers. That's where you picked up the the new times or the wave or whatever it was that was, you know, out there. So I think in, in more ways than one, the record store has kind of supported the scene. Um, I worked at a record store and like I worked at Vibrations, which, uh, you know, was kind of it was a cool experience. You saw all kinds of music people coming in there. But um, yeah, everybody, I'm sure one time or another went to the record stores. Vibrations. Was that in Miami? It was on Biscayne Boulevard, uh, up around 160th Street. I worked there until maybe 10 o'clock, and then I started my work at the Miami News. My first job was uh, as a photo archivist, and so I would take the bus down down Biscayne Boulevard at night. That was that was fun. It was cool. I bet. I bet it was so different too back then compared to how it is today. So <laughs> Wild West, I think, does does capture it when on the back of our book. That's it's kind of the the copy woman on the back and it applies for sure. I feel like too, when you when you're putting something together like like this book, in so many ways you almost have to have someone that's involved that was an archivist and maybe even still is an archivist and you kept a lot of things, but I know people who have kept things, but they weren't in the best condition. Uh, things kind of deteriorate over time. So how did you keep your own personal archives in that condition to where one day you could use them for a project like this? Jeff, I would love to give you a really good answer for that, but how my collection of flyers and shit survived hurricane Andrew, I have no idea because I lost everything. You know, I was living down South by the falls. Um, my, the place I was living just got totally demolished all my records, my clothes, everything. I was living in my car for a while, but somehow I have my flyers. Maybe they were up on a shelf. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't remember, but I still have a lot of flyers and photos. Um, yeah. I work at a museum now and I know there was no museum quality archives going on. Um, but I was able to save this stuff in uh, boxes and recently bought a house and was able to pull it. That's what you see behind me is like flyers and stuff from that I had saved for many years over the many different places I lived, including Miami, which is what you're seeing behind me. One, one of the uh, contributors who offered up a lot of really good, rare flyers and photos was uh, Jeff Schweer and Karen Wildeen, who run TrashFever.com. And they also have a, I think it's like monthly radio thing that they put out where they play like 10 or 20 songs. Uh, but Jeff and Karen really helped, you know, giving me permission to use some of the stuff. A lot of the stuff that they have archived came from Richard Shelter. What I think is Richard's sitting on a treasure trove of really cool stuff. He told me he's got bins of flyers and photos. So I would love to see that. Do you ever frame any of these flyers that you had in your collection at your own home? I have not. <laughs> I, I keep they're right here on my by my desk in a, a an airtight bin. I just keep them in folders and you know I have. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have one flyer from the replacement show that I got Tommy Stinson to sign. I should I should frame that. <laughs> I would imagine there's like one or two or maybe more favorites out of the bunch. And I want you to kind of think about that for a minute. Out of all the flyers that you have, the ones that are more focused on the local bands. Is there one in particular or maybe two that stand out to you as just your personal favorite. If it was a fire, you'd, you'd grab that one. You wouldn't want to lose it. <laughs> Is there any of those that stand out to you that are your personal favorites? I think it's worth noting as a side note to, before I answer that 
the majority of the flyers that we know of from South Florida, from Flynn's, from the B Club, from the from uh, the Blitz, from Twenty Seven Birds, from the Cameo, were all done by Serge. Um, how do you pronounce his last name, Chris? Uh, Villard. Villard. Yeah, Serge Villard. Uh, sometimes AKA you see Ustek. Ustek, right? You see him online as Serge Ustek. He did. He, he he had the company called Media Works, and he is responsible for the visual identity of the punk scene entirely. Um, second, for the answer, I would say I would probably grab, there's a couple of Flynn's flyers that are just the calendars and they just have so many cool little logos and different bands. I would probably grab one of those old Flynn's calendars. Those were really cool because it really did capture a lot of the bands, especially some of the maybe more obscure ones who yeah. perhaps you may have missed or never had a chance to see. So I remember when Richard sent me a few of those, I was, uh, it was like a history lesson in a way. Totally. You're like, holy really? shit, the gun club played in Miami. Oh my God. You know, or there's a lot of those uh, bands that you, that, that's the only documentation left. There's also some flyers in the book from some of the clubs. Uh, one of my favorite, my most precious ones that I won't, uh, won't lose is uh, from wet paint, which was uh, a unique kind of art house, um, a Miami proper again, out by Biscayne Boulevard, but off, the boulevard almost by the bay and uh, they would have uh local bands play there they would have keggers they would it was it was a cool art house art music scene and it was part of that artifacts and um and them that did this kind of art thing that was happening as well as the music so um yeah that that flyer is is uh, there's probably not too many of those left i'm holding on to it one, one more up though um, th it's not surges, but this is also one of my favorites just because it's so much different and more unique than the, the other flyers. It's the Iggy pop flyer. Is that the I show? Really, is really, that the show you went to with Jane's addiction? Yeah, it is. But that flyer is just really cool. It's got like a spotlight and Iggy on a black background. It's very different looking than the others. Um, and after that, the, the little ticket there is for the after show party at club new, where myself and Adrian and Scott, who were in my band, we all went to Club New and we met Iggy Pop, you know, so it was like really cool. <laughs> wow. I mean, I remember going back to the Amsterdam Palace when Richard and Chris lived there. I, I went to see the uh, TSOL show at the Cameo where the drills opened. And after the show, everybody just walked from the Cameo over to the Amsterdam Palace apartments and partied. So I, I remember that one for sure. Fire and Ice was a big place, too. I know the Ramones had their yeah. after party at Fire and Ice. Did you go to that as well? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> that might fall into the last category. Well, I don't know. You know, sometimes it's a little blurry, but uh, sure. yeah, probably. I know that that was, you know, that was one of the cool things that you could go to a, a show on a you know, punk show on the beach and then go to Fire and Ice and have the, your, even if it wasn't a formal after party, it was it was a party and it was, uh, you know, it would go late. I can imagine. So have you at all considered or been in touch with anyone to do some kind of exhibition and then you have like people come in and do Q&A and that sort of thing to help promote what you're doing in this book? Has that been in any any conversations around doing something like that? Absolutely. Um, we're, we're already trying to plan what we're going to do, uh, hopefully to return to the book fair next year. Uh, sorry, this year in November. And some of the ideas that we've tossed around was doing like an art exhibit. Uh, maybe featuring some of Jill Kahn's photos framed, some of the other artists, uh, possibly stuff from Howard Davis's collection, because he just moved back to Miami. Uh, so that's definitely been in our conversations. 
for the head of the special collections at the University of Miami, where Howard's um, he has some of his uh, artwork and flyers and photos from back then. Um, and artist Kevin Arrow as well. Um, we might work with the uh, University of Miami. It's a possibility to bring some of those to light. Very cool. That would be a lot of fun, especially you can get some Q and A's going on and have people come in to really bring it, bring it to life, you know, even more so that would be really, really neat to, uh, to see what other plans do you have for promoting the book, any more book book fairs or any other plans you have to do in-person signings right now. I think we're, um, it's the start of the year. I think we're planning out what our, what our strategy for the year is. I know we have, you know, we're going to be doing podcasts. We have uh, social media. We on Facebook, we have both a page and a, a, a group where we're pushing out images from the book and images that didn't make it into the book. And on Instagram. Um, <laughs> and on Instagram. Thank you. Sorry about that. So yeah. Um, you know, if you have an inkling of interest in the book, um, if you haven't yet bought the book, go on social media and follow us at Punk Under the Sun and you'll uh, see what the book is about. You'll get a little bit uh, feel for it. And I know you have a good record collection, Jeff. It looks like from what I can see. But for other people who are maybe not familiar with the South Florida music sound, I put together a quick playlist on Spotify called Punk Under the Sun. And on my YouTube channel, I have another playlist called Punk Under the Sun. If you just go search for it, and that's like the one on YouTube is way more um, extensive. I pull heavily from the Greg McLaughlin collection. (laughs) It's got to be good then. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely include all those links in the description of this interview as well. So that way, anyone who wants to check that out can definitely do that. If you want to purchase the book, you could definitely do that as well. Uh, But definitely follow uh, what you're doing because it sounds like there's more to come that you're still working on for 2024. So that's exciting and just a really great book. I mean, just amazing content, uh, awesome photos, uh, whether you're... From South Florida or Florida in general, I imagine if you're just a fan of music, you're going to be blown away by what's in this book. You're going to learn something, whether you're from here or not. You're going to learn something that you didn't know before. And I think that's what really makes this really an amazing read is that it is so historical in terms of what you've captured. So awesome work to everyone who had a part in putting this together uh, because it really is an amazing book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. So as you get ready to close things out, gentlemen, I kind of want to turn it over to you. Any final thoughts you want to close out the interview with? Uh, I will turn it over to both of you. So I guess I'll just jump in and say, you know, I'm really appreciative for everybody that we reached out to put the book together. Um, uh, It really was a relatively small number of us. In retrospect, you know, when in at the time you feel like wow this is awesome it's incredible it's huge it's you know it's such a, an important scene and it was but it was really wasn't that huge of a scene where we can actually name a lot of the people who were who were the key movers and shakers through that whole decade um you know musicians people who are doing publications people who are running the bookstores djs the radio station. So it's, we tried to put as much in that, in the book and recognize as many people as possible. There's a huge index where hopefully everybody will see their name in there. But if you have any interest at all in the eighties and what was happening, um, you know, that really was the key for me of working on the book is to, is to expose, you know, just how all of these different people work together and um, made a, a really amazing scene, amazing time. Yeah. Um, 
I would say going back to your last question to kind of keep going a little bit is looking forward to the rest of this year. Uh, we're, we're really trying to build our community. I think that's sounds kind of cheesy, but it, it is what we are trying. We're trying to pull all these people back together in some way, you know, pull the threads, knit something neat and, and cool out of it uh, through the Facebook communities, through whatever, you know, however we can bring people back together and kind of, the, the scene is shattered right now. There's nowhere, there's no live music going on. Churchill's has been closed. Cameo has been closed. There's not really a center place. So I kind of hope in some way the book helps bring people back together. 